When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello again, fellow flyers. I've missed you guys. Welcome again to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. This is episode nine of the Plane Crash Podcast. And today we will be focusing on two planes, Pan Am Flight 1736 and KLM Flight 4805, both of which were involved in an incident on the island of Tenerife on March 27th, 1977. This episode, episode 9, is dedicated to a young listener out there named Blaze. Blaze wrote us a review recently that said, Hi, I'm Blaze. I'm a kid and asked to listen to your podcast every time I'm in the car. Blaze goes on to request that we cover the Tenerife accident. So Blaze, we appreciate your review and we hope you keep forcing whoever is driving you around to listen to our podcast And to all our other listeners out there that have been writing us kind messages on Twitter and leaving us reviews on iTunes and emailing us, we really appreciate it. We read our reviews, and the encouragement you give us really keeps us going. It keeps the episodes coming, so if you have a moment and you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Plane Crash Pod. Our Twitter handle is Plane Crash Pod. Joining us again today on the podcast is our talented and gracious producer, Tess Andrade. Welcome to episode nine, Tess Andrade. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for being on the podcast. Tess gets the most fan mail. No one ever writes (laughs) (laughs) me. They're always writing saying how much they love Tess. How do you feel about the people loving you so much? Wow, I am just flattered beyond belief, and I hope that I can make my two fans proud. You have many fans. You have many people writing into the show saying how great you are, how much you balance things. So thanks again for joining us. If you could fly anywhere in the world tomorrow, let's say some miracle happened at work and your boss came to you and he said, Tess, I'm giving you the next month off. I'm giving you $5,000 and a free ticket to anywhere you want to go in the world. Where would you go? Do you have any place that you really want to go? Ooh, that is a really good question. Um... Where would I go? I think it would have to be Japan. Oh, an interesting choice. What is it about Japan that draws your eye? Well, I have always had an interest in Japanese culture. uh, And I'd love to see Tokyo. Mm -hmm. I think just the the design and architecture is really interesting to me. And uh, the Japanese countryside looks just stunning as well. Yeah, I have n- I've been to Tokyo once, but I've never been uh, to the countryside. I was in Tokyo for four days once, and all I was exposed to was Tokyo, and it was amazing. I think Japan 
was the most I've felt like I was on another planet in my entire life out of any trip I've gone to. Yeah, you. That's the trip that you didn't you fly some crazy first class. I did on the way there or something. I I flew Singapore Airlines, and my friend had a ton of miles, and he just offered to take me with him, and we got to stay in like a suite. I got on the plane, and they said, "Hey, Mr. Bauer," and they gave me pajamas, um, gave me a glass of champagne, and I went in the a private bathroom and like had toiletries and perfume and they had a queen size bed that they made up. For wow. Us. Queen size. It was kind of ridiculous. It was a, something I'll never experience again, but it was amazing. Wow. Yeah. I would love to, I feel like being in a suite might help, um, assuage my, my fears of flying. Yeah, no. It was, Did you feel more relaxed in that setting, or were you just asleep the whole time? I was pretty much asleep the whole time. Wow, yeah, I guess you would be. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel guilty. I should have enjoyed it more, but I just was tired, and I went to sleep, and I woke up with 45 minutes left in the flight. And it was, I think, about a 11-hour flight. Wow. But it was the first time I've ever traveled that far. And the second we landed, I was just ready to do anything and everything all day because I was mm-hmm. so well rested. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, that uh, makes me want to splurge for first class next time I'm flying somewhere really far away. Yeah, no, I thought it was insightful. Like to me, I was like, oh, this is such an expensive thing. People shouldn't pay for this. But if you're a CEO of a company and you're about to have like a super important meeting and you're going to, you know, wheel and deal for billions of dollars, it's probably important to be on top of your mental game. Yeah, definitely. So did you have a good week? Anything exciting been going on? Yeah, had a great week. No complaints. Um, Didn't get to fly anywhere, but hoping to take a few trips soon. You've just been working hard, doing what you can to make the world a better place. Trying to make that cheddar. Yeah, trying to make some cheddar cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a cheesemonger. All right. (laughs) That's enough for the uh, small talk. Thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. At the top of every show, I like to point out that I'm not a pilot. I haven't gone to school for aeronautical engineering. I've always been a nervous flyer, and we've been doing this podcast as an exposure therapy of sorts, hoping we'll learn more about how all these plane accidents have added up to air travel being as safe as it is today. We realize that each accident is a tragedy in the lives of many people out in the world, and we don't want to be insensitive or inconsiderate of that fact. We just find the details surrounding plane accidents to be interesting and worth evaluating and discussing. Even though these tragedies happened, and we'd like to undo them if we could, on another level, they help contribute to teaching us what could cause future tragedies. We take lessons away from each event and modify the air travel system to be safe for us to use today. Shall we get started on Tenerife? Let's get started. KLM Flight 4805 was a scheduled flight from Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, Netherlands to Gran Canaria Airport in the Canary Islands on March 27, 1977. The captain of the KLM flight was a Dutchman named Jacob Van Zanten. Born in 1927, he was 50 years old at the time of the incident. Van Zanten had 11,700 flight hours, over 1,500 hours in 747s. He started working for KLM in 1950 at the age of 23. 
And Van Zant was often seen as the face of KLM. He was in magazine advertisements for the airline and was the airline's chief flight instructor, training KLM pilots to fly 747s. He spent much of his later professional life inside flight simulators training pilots as opposed to flying real jets himself. At the time of this flight, he lived in Sassenheim, Netherlands. The first officer of the KLM flight was Klaus Moyers. He was a Dutchman, 42 years old, had 9,200 flight hours, but only 95 hours of flying time on 747s. The second officer or flight engineer for the KLM flight was Willem Schroeder. Schroeder was 48 years old. He had 17,031 flight hours, 543 of which were on 747s. So Schroeder was a very experienced flight engineer. The KLM plane was a Boeing 747-206B that was built in 1971. It had 21,195 flight hours, 5,202 flight cycles since 1971. KLM Flight 4805 took off from Amsterdam at 9 a.m. on March 27th with 235 passengers on board, a flight crew of 14 for a total of 249 human beings on the flight. The flight was a charter flight for Holland International Travel Group. It was full of mostly Dutch citizens going to Gran Canaria for vacation in search of warmer temperatures in those early days of the spring of 1977. Our other flight we will be discussing today, Pan Am Flight 1736, was a scheduled flight from JFK in New York to Gran Canaria Airport in the Canary Islands also on March 27, 1977. The flight was delayed for 45 minutes and took off from LAX in Los Angeles at 5.29 p.m. local time. It landed in New York at JFK at 1.17 a.m. Once in New York, there was a flight crew change and only 14 additional passengers boarded the plane because the plane was already quite full. The captain of Pan Am Flight 1736 was Victor Grubbs of Centerpoint, New York. He was 56 years old had 21,043 flight hours, 564 hours on Boeing 747s. His first officer was Robert Bragg of Howard Beach, New York. Bragg was 39 years old at the time. He had 10,800 flight hours, 2,796 hours in 747s. The flight engineer for the Pan Am flight was George Warnes of Blairstown, New Jersey. He was 46 years old, had 15,210 flight hours, 559 of which were on 747s. The plane itself was a Boeing 747-121, built in 1969, first flown commercially on January 22, 1970. This particular plane was the first 747 ever flown commercially, and it was also the first 747 to ever be hijacked. It was hijacked in August 1970. It was diverted to Cuba on a flight from JFK to Puerto Rico. An interesting side note, during this hijacking in the summer of 1970, a man seated in first class pulls out a gun and he demands that the plane be rerouted to Cuba. The cockpit obliged and landed in Havana, where the Cuban leader, Fidel Castro, greeted the plane, and the plane's pilot gave the Cuban dictator a tour of the outside of the plane. The captain of that flight, Augustus Watkins, 
said that Castro asked him all kinds of questions about the plane's capabilities, its speed and capacity. This was the first time Castro had ever seen a 747. Eventually, the hijacker leaves the plane. He asks if he can get his luggage, and the captain has to explain to him that he can't access the luggage because the 747 needs special equipment to get his luggage. But they promise to send his luggage to Cuba once they get to Puerto Rico. Castro says goodbye, and the plane takes off to Miami and eventually ends up in Puerto Rico after a seven-hour delay. So this plane has quite a legacy of historical significance. So, wait, sorry to interject, but so this plane was diverted to Cuba by the hijacker? Yeah, apparently the hijacker sitting in first class, he pulls out a gun. These are like, you know, pre-security days uh-huh. where you could bring a gun on a plane. And the uh, pilot was like, okay, you have a gun. Where do you want to go? And they were like, let's go to wow, Cuba. Wow, that is so crazy. It's a different world than we live in today, huh? And, and so was he working for Castro? Was He must have had some Cuban ties. He probably was Cuban. I don't know exactly what the story is behind it. But he just pulled out a gun, said, take me to Cuba. They get to Cuba. They land. I think there was even a little bit of a worry that the airport that they landed at wasn't going to be long enough that they could, you know, take off from a massive 747 jumbo jet. Wow. Okay. So there were some safety concerns with yeah. them landing Yeah. I think there. Uh, Castro, the, the pilot even said, you want to come on the plane and check it out? And Castro said, no, I think I would scare everyone. It's hmm. kind of interesting, huh? So, and, and even after all of that, they were willing to send his luggage back to yeah, Cuba? I guess that was, these were polite times. <laughs> Your hijackers didn't do so anything crazy. other than say, just take me somewhere. And then when they landed, they were like, okay, well, can I get my luggage? And they're like, you know what? We'll send you your luggage. Check out the 747s. Check out the outside. Can we go now? And they're like, okay. So it just led to a seven-hour delay. Just a delay. That's it. That, that light hijacking just caused a seven-hour delay. No cause for alarm. Exactly. Well, Pan Am Flight 1736, just like KLM Flight 4805, was also a charter flight that was booked by Royal Cruise Lines. The plane's passengers were mostly retired Americans from Southern California. They were flying to Gran Canaria to start a 12-day cruise. The cruise was called Mediterranean Highlights, and the ship they were going to take was called the Golden Odyssey. The plan was to take off from L.A. on March 26th, land in Gran Canaria on March 27th at 1.15 p.m., hit several ports in the Mediterranean over the course of 12 days, and eventually end up in Athens, Greece on April 8th, where they'd all fly back to the United States. The flight had 380 passengers, a flight crew of 16, for a total of 396 people on board. 30 of the passengers on Pan Am Flight 1736 were all from the same retirement community in Southern California. So in the late morning of March 27th, 1977, both Pan Am Flight 1736 and KLM Flight 4805 are both in the skies above the Atlantic, headed to Gran Canaria, full of passengers eager to start their vacations. Before we get into what happens next, I think that we need a little history lesson on the Canary Islands and why what's about to happen is happening. The Canary Islands are a chain of islands off the northwestern coast of Africa, just west of Morocco. The Canary Islands, or Islas Canarias, 
were named after the wild packs of dogs explorers found when they first discovered the island chain. El Can in Spanish means the dog. So Canary Islands really means islands of dogs. Isle of dogs. Yeah. I always thought it was named after yellow birds. So did I. Well, now we We learned something new. We stand corrected. There's seven main islands. The largest island is Tenerife, and the third largest island is Gran Canaria. The city of Las Palmas is the largest city in the Canary Islands with a population of 400,000. Las Palmas is located on Gran Canaria. It's home to the largest airport, and this is where that KLM and Pan Am flight are headed. The city of Las Palmas is a popular launching off point or ending point for cruises. So lots of flights come in and out of the Las Palmas airport. In its history, Italians, Portuguese, and Arab explorers all claimed the islands at one point. But the Canary Islands have lived under Spanish rule since the year 1496. Over the past five centuries, there's a blending that happens between the island's natives that mostly came from North Africa and the Spaniards that arrived after Spain established rule of the island chain. However, in the 1960s, there's this blossoming anger amongst a small group of residents that want independence from Spain, or at least a little more say and influence in their government than Spain was giving them at the time. So this movement, called Canary Islands Independence Movement, where they were also known as the Movement for the Self-Determination and Independence of the Canaries Archipelago, is born in 1964. They start planting bombs in public buildings around the islands, trying to gain attention and influence for their cause. In 1976, they claimed responsibility for more than a dozen bombs. And on March 27, 1977, at 11.30 a.m., while our KLM and Pan Am flights are in the sky and en route, Two young men that are part of this movement walk into the Gran Canaria International Airport carrying a bomb in a suitcase. They walk the suitcase to the front of a flower shop, set it down, and walk out. Shortly after, a bomb threat is called into the airport, but before they can evacuate the terminal, the bomb explodes, injuring eight people. The airfield is intact, but authorities at the airport are worried there might be another bomb somewhere at the airport. So before they allow any more planes to land, they want to do a thorough search of the terminal and airport to ensure there isn't a second bomb anywhere that could be harmful to anyone. So all the planes that are en route to Gran Canaria International in Las Palmas are diverted to the smaller Los Rodeos Airport on the nearby island of Tenerife, less than 100 miles away, where they're going to land, wait a few hours until they're given the all clear from authorities back at Las Palmas that it's safe to fly into Las Palmas Airport, and that the terminal there has been secured. The Pan Am flight gets word of the incident at Las Palmas, and they're told they need to land at Tenerife. But the captain, Captain Grubbs, really doesn't want to. He asks air traffic control, can't we stay in a holding pattern until the airport reopens? The Pan Am flight had plenty of fuel, and he just wants to circle above Las Palmas until getting the all clear instead of landing in Tenerife and having to take off again. He's hoping it'll just be a minor delay. Air traffic control tells the Pan Am flight that they need to land, so the Pan Am flight heads for Tenerife. The guys in the Pan Am cockpit don't want to upset the passengers, so initially they hide the fact that a bombing took place, 
and they tell the passengers over the PA that a plane stalled on the runway in Las Palmas, thus they're being diverted to Tenerife. KLM Flight 4805 gets word of the incident at Las Palmas, and they too are diverted. The KLM plane lands on runway 30 at Los Rodeos Airport on the island of Tenerife at 1.38 p.m. Initially, the KLM captain, Captain Van Zanten, told everyone to remain on the plane. But after 20 minutes, the passengers disembarked and were shuttled in minibuses to relax in the small terminal. Pan Am Flight 1736 lands at 2.15 p.m. on Tenerife, about 40 minutes after the KLM plane. They park away from the terminal, and passengers remain on the plane because the terminal of the small airport is already too crowded. All the KLM passengers are already in the terminal, along with passengers from other flights. The Pan Am flight from New York was seven hours, so Captain Grubbs has a staircase brought over so the passengers can get off the plane, stretch their legs, get some fresh air, but they have to hang out on the ground by the plane. They can't go over to the terminal. So now it's just a waiting game, and there's a long delay where passengers watch movies, read magazines, talk to one another, and imagine what their vacation will eventually be like if they ever get to Las Palmas. The delay carries on for three hours, and at 4 p.m., KLM Captain Van Zanten calls into KLM headquarters, and they remind him that he's been on duty for seven hours. The plane doesn't take off in the next hour. KLM might have to fly down a whole new flight crew to Tenerife or Las Palmas because there's a Dutch law preventing flight crews from working too long of hours. They don't want tired people operating a plane. So the captain has that fact in the back of his mind. He's cognizant he's under a time crunch. If the plane doesn't get up in the sky soon, he and the crew might have to stay in the Canary Islands for the night when they were planning on being back in Amsterdam by the end of that night, back at home with their families. Captain Van Zanten also makes a fateful decision at 4 p.m., two and a half hours after they've landed on Tenerife. He decides to refuel the KLM plane. The plane had enough fuel to get back to Amsterdam. No one knows exactly why he chose to refuel. Maybe he was anticipating more delays. Maybe weather would be bad back in Amsterdam and they might have to land somewhere else. But in any event, at 4 p.m., he decides to refuel the plane. Refueling only takes 30 to 40 minutes, so he probably figured, hey, we're sitting here doing nothing, might as well get some fuel just in case. Well, unluckily, right after the fueling process begins, they get a call from Las Palmas and the airport's back open. They're welcome to make the short flight over to Gran Canaria International, but because they started refueling, they had to complete the process, and this just adds to another 30 minutes of delay, which means more time on Tenerife. In addition to the pressure of time constraints because the flight crew might go over its legal period of time that it could be on duty, this added time also gives more opportunity for the weather on Tenerife to worsen. As the KLM and Pan Am flights sat on the tarmac for the last three hours, the weather had gone from sunny to overcast and chilly. Low-lying clouds rolled down the mountain, and visibility at the airport was getting poorer as the day went on. The airport on Tenerife, Los Rodeos Airport, was very small. It had one main runway, four taxiways, and a modest terminal. It usually didn't service these massive 747 jumbo jets. Los Rodeos dealt mostly with smaller planes. There was no ground radar there, so in foggy weather, 
The air traffic controller couldn't know precisely where every jet was at the airport. Los Rodeos Airport was located in the north part of the island. There's a massive mountain, Pico de Tede, on Tenerife. It's 12,250 feet high, and the mountain keeps the north side of the island humid because ocean breezes can't get to the south part of the island. Often on Tenerife, ocean winds blow clouds against the north side of the mountain. The clouds block out the sunshine, and eventually when the ocean winds die, those clouds then roll down the mountain and form a layer of fog. So Los Rodeos Airport is in the north part of the island on Tenerife, which often has issues with fog. The airport had a number of accidents in the late 60s, including an Iberia Airlines flight in 1965 that collided with machinery on the runway. 60 people died. In 1972, a Spantex Airlines flight got caught in wind shortly after takeoff, and 155 people died. On Tenerife, they were constructing a new airport on the south of the island, away from the fog and winds, but it took years to build, and it was located an hour away from the main city on the island, Santa Cruz de Tenerife. It was rumored that merchants weren't happy about this new airport, because they thought it would be undesirable to tourists. They might not want to drive an hour to the main city. The North Airport is just much closer. By 1977, there was a new runway at this new airport, but they're still slowly building a new terminal, and it hadn't been completed yet. So the KLM flight is refueling, and the Pan Am crew is ready to rock and roll. Once they get word that the all-clear has been given at Las Palmas, they radio over that they're ready to taxi and take off. The Tenerife Air Traffic Controller, Fernando Hernandez Abad Gonzalez, informs them that the KLM flight is blocking the one path they have to the runway. The airport is a parking lot right now, with a number of jets parked on taxiways and all around the terminal building. The one way the Pan Am flight needs to go to get access to the runway is currently being blocked by the KLM flight that's refueling for the next 30 minutes. Understandably, the Pan Am cockpit was annoyed. They've been sitting around on Tenerife for two hours, they want to leave, so the captain radios over to the KLM plane. How much longer are you going to be with that refueling? The KLM captain Van Zanten responds, about 20 minutes. The Pan Am crew goes outside the plane to see if there's any way they can squeeze past the KLM plane. But they discover that they'd have to drive off the concrete into the dirt, and since the plane weighs 340 tons, they might get the plane stuck in the mud or earth, and they decide they have no choice but to wait. Passengers on the Pan Am flight are impatient and grumpy, so Captain Grubbs on the Pan Am flight gets on the overhead speaker and says that anyone that wants to come check out the cockpit, take a sneak peek inside, see what it looks like, is welcome. So this gives passengers a distraction to burn off a few more minutes of the delay. They get to go inside the cockpit of a 747 jumbo jet. So now both the KLM and Pan Am planes are sitting on the tarmac, waiting for the KLM plane to complete the refueling process. In the KLM cockpit, the captain and his flight crew trade stories about previous flights to pass the time. They're just talking shop. Captain Van Zanten tells a story of landing in Ireland in poor weather conditions and how he could only see the runway when he was 200 feet from the ground. Then apparently a pilot of a plane that was landing after him claimed to the tower to be able to see the ground from a further distance and was rude over the radio about it. 
Van Zanten says the only reason the pilot that was landing after him could see the ground from a further distance was because he, Van Zanten, had just landed a massive KLM 747 jumbo jet, and he pushed a path through all that fog so the planes behind him could see. These are the kind of mundane stories they're telling, but I thought I could give some insight. They're just talking about their jobs, like any of us would talk with our coworkers about our jobs, just trying to pass the time. In the Pan Am cockpit... Captain Grubbs is having small talk with all the passengers that are sneaking a peek of the cockpit. He keeps explaining that he had preferred to stay in the sky and fly a holding pattern for a bit instead of landing on Tenerife because his plane wasn't low on fuel, but the authorities at Las Palmas told him that he had to land. He also lets the cat out of the bag and starts telling passengers the real reason for the delay, that there was a bomb in the terminal but he didn't want to worry anyone, and that Las Palmas Airport is now secure. Two Pan Am employees, Juan Murillo and John Cooper, made a 25-minute journey and flew over from Las Palmas to meet the Pan Am jumbo jet on Tenerife. Murillo was a Pan Am supervisor in charge of chartered flights, and Cooper an airline mechanic. They take off from Las Palmas at 4 p.m., hitching a ride on an Iberia Airlines flight, landing at 4.25 on Tenerife. They plan to fly in the Pan Am plane back to Las Palmas. Rubina Monique Van Lanschot was a hostess for Holland International, which was the company that booked and chartered the KLM flight. She had a boyfriend that lived on Tenerife, and when the KLM plane landed there, she decided not to fly on to Las Palmas. She just asked a co-worker to send her luggage to Tenerife from Las Palmas once the plane landed there, and she stayed on Tenerife. So two new people joined the Pan Am flight because it was diverted to Tenerife, and one person left the KLM flight because of it being diverted to Tenerife. Now as the refueling process continues, the conversation in the KLM cockpit has moved on from old war stories to the current time crunch they're under. Captain Van Zanten, First Officer Moyers, and Flight Engineer Schroeder are all discussing Dutch law in regards to how much time a flight crew can be on duty. Schroeder, the flight engineer, asks, what are the repercussions if you go over? Van Zanten replies, you'll face the judge. Schroeder asks, is it a question of fines or is it a question of imprisonment? First Officer Moyers answers, yes, that would mean imprisonment. Van Zanten then comments, it would mean the revocation of your license for a while, and that means money. Seems like an innocuous conversation in the cockpit, but it really gives you an insight into their headspace at that particular moment. They feel under pressure to not go over any work time limits. They're discussing Dutch aviation labor law. Taking off in a most expeditious manner is suddenly the mood of the moment. And that might come into play in a few minutes. Finally, the KLM flight engineer announces the fuel is in, and the crew starts doing their check for takeoff. They're worried about the weather and think they might have to be diverted again if the weather is poor in Las Palmas as it is in Tenerife. In the Pan Am cockpit, the crew is still annoyed at KLM for holding them up. They talk about the plane, the Concorde, and how it wasn't very eco-friendly because it used up so much fuel. A passenger makes a joke, this has been a good trip, especially because it hasn't been rough for the last four hours, because they've been sitting on the tarmac in Tenerife. So now the KLM flight is ready to start taxiing for takeoff. The Pan Am flight has been trapped by this KLM flight this entire time. They're anxious to take off as well. Captain Van Zanten radios over to the tower. KLM 4805 for Las Palmas ready to start. 
The tower responds, Roger 4805, you are cleared to start. Seconds later, Captain Grubbs from Pan Am joins in on the convo with Clipper 1736 ready to start. The tower responds, Roger 1736, uh, stand by. So already the two planes are right on top of each other and eager to get off from Tenerife. By now it's 4.50 p.m. The fog has rolled in, visibility's very low, barely above the minimum for takeoff, and there's confusion from the KLM crew about where the tower wants them to taxi for takeoff. The airport at Tenerife is very small, not easy for jumbo jets to navigate. There's only four taxiways and one main runway. Some of those taxiways had parked planes on them earlier in the day because the airport was so crowded from so many planes being diverted there. On top of that, it's super foggy out, and the guys in the control tower and crews of the Pan Am and KLM flights can't see a great distance. So the KLM flight radios over to the tower. We require backtrack on 1-2 for takeoff runway 30. They're basically saying, hey, our plan is to taxi down the runway. Once we get to the end of the runway, we're going to back up. We're going to make a 180-degree turn, turn completely around, and then take off from run- runway 30. The tower responds, okay, 4805, taxi to the holding position runway 30. Taxi into the runway and uh, leave runway third to your left. So the tower uses confusing language, saying initially okay first, and then gives the KLM plane new instructions, saying don't taxi all the way down the runway and pull a 180. Just taxi down the runway until you get to the third taxiway. Turn off. Use that taxiway to get to the end of the runway so you don't have to make a huge 180 or back up on the runway. They can just use this third taxiway to make a loop, get into position for takeoff. It'd be much more easy, a much more gradual turn. Then the KLM cockpit tells the tower they'll get off the runway at the first taxiway. The tower told them to get off on the third taxiway originally, but the KLM crew was confused, so instead of correcting them, the air traffic control official, Azkunaga, reverts to the first plan. Okay, KLM 80, uh, correction 4805, taxi straight ahead for the runway and make backtrack. Again, the KLM plane asks if they should turn off on a taxiway, and the tower tells them negative. Apparently, it's become too complicated. No one can see, so the tower official just says, go down the runway, turn around on the runway for takeoff. The time is now 4.59 p.m. At 5 p.m. on the dot, the Pan Am flight asks for permission to start engines and wants taxiing instructions. Air traffic control at Tenerife tells them to taxi into the runway and uh, leave runway third, third to your left. So the tower gives the same direction to the Pan Am plane that it gave to the KLM plane hoping the Pan Am plane won't get confused like the KLM plane did. So now you have two jumbo jets. The KLM plane on the main runway, taxiing down, and when it gets to the end, it's going to turn around on the runway to wait for takeoff. And simultaneously, you have the Pan Am flight taxiing down the runway as well, with the plan that they're going to turn off on the third taxiway, or the third exit off the runway, to get in position to take off after the KLM flight. The Pan Am plane starts taxiing at 5.02 p.m. 
As the Pan Am flight taxis down the runway, Captain Grubbs asks the two Pan Am employees, Mario and Cooper, these are the two guys that flew over from Las Palmas and are seated in the jump seats in the cockpit. He asks them, what really happened over there today? In reference to the Las Palmas airport attack, Mario replied, they put a bomb in the terminal, sir, right where the check-in counters are. The KLM plane is almost to the end of the runway, and the tower says to the KLM plane, at the end of the runway, make a 180 and report uh, ready uh, for air traffic control clearance. The Pan Am cockpit is a bit confused about the layout of the airport. They're taxiing in a huge 747 jumbo jet. And the third taxiway, or exit from the runway, is a difficult turn to make for a huge airplane. It's a turn that is at a 135-degree angle. When you make that turn, you start going backwards from where you want to go. It's a super sharp turn for a huge plane to make in a small airport. First Officer Bragg of the Pan Am flight radios over, would you confirm that you want the Clipper 1736 to turn left at the third intersection? Air traffic control responds, third one, sir. One, two, three, third, third one. That's as clear as you can respond, and the Pan Am crew knows their instruction. Third exit. The tower then asked the Pan Am flight to confirm that it had turned off the third taxiway and was no longer on the runway. Bragg, the first officer of Pan Am, replies, Clipper 1736. The Pan Am flight's saying, we will confirm once we've turned off the runway. We understand your request. The Pan Am crew then discusses their flight plan and continues taxiing along the main runway. The controller radios to both the Pan Am and KLM flights that the runway lights are out of service. In the cockpit of the Pan Am flight, they're having a discussion about the angles of the turns of the four taxiways. On the map of the airport, they can see that the fourth taxiway is only a 45-degree turn. And they think the air traffic controller might be confused and calling the fourth taxiway the third taxiway because the first taxiway was clogged up with planes all day. In any event, they can't wrap their head around why they're being asked to make this 135-degree turn a super sharp turn when the fourth taxiway is only a 45-degree turn, which would be much easier for them, for them to make in their massive 747 jumbo jet. So they're slowly moving down this runway. They can't see because of the fog. They're confused about which exit or taxiway they're supposed to take, and they can't see them anyways, while the KLM flight is now at the top of the runway, ready to take off. Captain Van Zanten on the KLM plane starts to push the throttles forward for takeoff when his first officer, Moyer, says, wait a minute, we don't have ATC clearance. Van Zanten replies, no, I know that. Go ahead, ask. The first officer, Moyer's radios to the tower. Uh, the KLM 4805 is now ready for takeoff, uh, and we are waiting for our ATC clearance. The tower responds, KLM 8705, uh, you are clear to the pop-up beacon. Climb and maintain flight level 90. Right turn after takeoff. Proceed with heading 40 until intercepting the 325 radial from Las Palmas VOR. That's the control tower giving them their instructions for where to fly after they take off. The control tower never gave KLM clearance for takeoff. The KLM First Officer Moyers repeats the instructions to the tower to clarify that they were received correctly. Uh, Roger, sir, we're clear to the Papa Beacon, flight level 9-0, right turn out 0-4-0 until intercepting the 325, and we're now at takeoff. 
The KLM captain then says, we're going. At 5.06 p.m., Captain Van Zanten pushes forward the throttles for KLM Flight 4805, never having received takeoff clearance from the tower. After the tower hears the KLM captain say, we're going, he radios over, okay, stand by for takeoff, I will call you. At the same time, the Pan Am cockpit just heard the KLM captain say that he's taking off, so they immediately radio over, we're still taxiing down the runway, the Clipper 1736. Unfortunately, both the control tower and the Pan Am first officer Bragg are talking on the airport's radio frequency at the exact same time. This causes a shrill three to four second noise on the KLM radios. This high-pitched noise completely blocked the standby for takeoff I'll call you from the tower and the message from Pan Am that they were still on the runway. Instead, all KLM hears is okay after the KLM captain says, we're going. A few seconds later, the tower radios, Roger Papa Alpha 1736, report the runway clear. First officer of the Pan Am flight responds, okay, we'll report when when clear. So now the KLM plane is racing down the runway to takeoff, and the KLM flight engineer Schroeder finally asks the KLM captain, is he not clear then? in reference to hearing the Pan Am flight say, we'll report when we're clear. KLM Captain Van Zanten can't hear him because the plane is blasting down the runway at 100 miles an hour. It's loud in the cockpit, so the captain says, what did you say? Schroeder then asks, is he not clear, the Pan American? The captain responds, oh yes. In the Pan Am cockpit, they still don't know the severity of the situation. They're taxiing down the runway in the fog, confused about the exits, they can't see, and don't know which exit they're supposed to take, the third or fourth taxiway. They hear the KLM radio transmissions and can sense the KLM crew is anxious to take off. The captain of the Pan Am flight starts mocking the KLM captain, saying, let's get the hell out right here, get the hell out of here. The first officer, Bragg, says, yeah, he's anxious, isn't he? They taxi past the third taxiway the one they were instructed to turn on to. And the Pan Am second officer, George Warren, says, yeah, after he held us up for an hour and a half, that bastard. Bragg added, yeah, that prick. Second officer Warren says, now he's in a rush. The three men in the Pan Am cockpit look out the cockpit window to see the landing lights of the KLM Flight 4805 racing straight at them. Captain Grubbs of Pan Am says, there he is. Look at him. God damn, that son of a bitch is coming. Get off, get off, get off, screams his first officer, Bragg. We're still on the runway, screams Bragg. And Captain Grubbs says, what's he doing? He'll kill us all. Both Bragg and Grubbs yank their control columns to the left and push the engine throttles in a desperate attempt to pull the Pan Am flight off the runway. The KLM flight was now going 150 miles an hour past their abort speed, and finally they see Pan Am Flight 1736 on the runway ahead. They're going too fast to slow down, so their only hope is to get off the ground and fly over them. Van Zanten pulls back on his control column with all his might, so hard that the tail of the KLM plane hits the ground and cuts a path in the runway behind. The KLM plane gets slightly off the ground. At 5.06 p.m., Captain Van Zanten utters his final words. Oh, God damn. And KLM Flight 4805 slams into Pan Am Flight 1736. The inside engine on the right wing of the airborne KLM plane 
slashed through the lounge on the upper deck of the Pan Am plane, ripping the top of the plane off like a tornado tearing the roof of a house off, instantly killing everyone in the Pan Am second-level lounge located behind the cockpit. The left wing and left landing gear of the KLM plane completely destroyed the back of the Pan Am plane and instantly killed the passengers seated there. The right landing gear from the KLM plane tore apart the fuselage of the Pan Am plane just behind the first class to the middle of the plane where the economy section middle lavatories were located. After striking the Pan Am plane, the KLM plane was airborne for about 200 yards before it crash landed on the runway and skidded before exploding into flames. All 248 human beings on the KLM plane were killed instantly as the accident damaged the fuel tanks and the entire plane that was just recently filled up to the brim with fuel exploded into flames. In the Pan Am plane, the impact of the crash bent the fuselage to the point that none of the doors could be opened up. In sections of the plane, the floor collapsed and people fell into the belly of the plane that was filling up with smoke and fire. Pieces of metal flew through the plane and wounded passengers, causing cuts and gashes. The overhead cargo bins and a number of areas on the plane fell on top of people and cracked the cabin floor. Live electrical wires were dangling throughout the plane. The only way out for passengers was through holes in the side of the plane holes created by this violent accident. Some passengers climbed on the top of seat backs and pulled themselves out of a hole in the ceiling of the plane, slid down the side of the plane and onto the burning wing, and then jumped 30 feet to the ground. As I mentioned earlier, most of the people on the Pan Am flight were of retirement age. So when these people are escaping the plane, they're jumping out windows, holes in the side of the plane, They're jumping from the wing of the plane 25 feet down to the ground, and they're breaking legs, ankles, arms, and backbones. There were two different ladies that jumped off the wing of the Pan Am plane and broke legs or ankles, couldn't move, and had other fleeing passengers jump on top of them because no one could see below the wing. When these passengers were escaping the plane, they ran onto the wing and jumped from the wing without knowing anything. They just knew they had to get away from the structure that was on fire and about to explode. They had no idea where they were jumping to because they couldn't see the ground below. A number of people on board the Pan Am flight sat in their seats after the crash, expecting some sort of instruction or process for exiting the plane. Many were in shock and managed to stagger to emergency doors that would never open. The people that survived were mostly seated in first class or in the middle of the plane by the lavatories, just in front or behind the middle bathrooms. Surviving passengers took it upon themselves to immediately find a hole to climb out of the plane as opposed to waiting for direction. Within three minutes of the accident, flames had spread throughout the plane, and the center wing fuel tank exploded, engulfing the plane in flames. In an interview after the crash, First Officer Bragg estimated that the flames reached up to 250 feet in the sky. 61 people survived out of the 396 on board Pan Am Flight 1736. In total, 583 people died in the accident on Tenerife on March 27, 1977, making it the deadliest accident in aviation history. Well, Tess, that's the story of uh, Tenerife. Did you have any thoughts while I was telling you the story? Um, well, it's a really tragic story. I've never heard. I'd never heard of this one. Um, 
I mean, it seems like a lot of things just went wrong at the same time. The KLM flight seems like they were under time pressure and the captain was just very anxious to take off. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Pan Am flight was struggling to figure out which which uh, taxiway they were supposed to turn on to, right? So mm-hmm. they, they probably shouldn't have been on the runway at that point, um, but they were still trying to figure it out. No, I think you've... Uh, it's a, it is true. Everything you said is true. I think the, there were just so many factors that led to it. You know, they couldn't see Mm -hmm. the weather was bad. Obviously the captain of the KLM flight, uh, was, you know, not following protocol at all. Mm -hmm. The plane took off without clearance. That's not something you're supposed to do. You have to get clearance and he never got clearance, but he just went anyway. So I have a question. When the control tower gave Van Zanten, is that how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Uh, instructions on what he should do once he took off. Mm-hmm. Do you think that could have been interpreted as like a tacit, go ahead, you're clear? Yeah, no, I think you are already tapping into what the report's eventually going to say is that the language used between the air traffic control and the pilots was very dis informal and led to confusion mm-hmm. the the fact that it seemed like him it, saying we're going might the control tower might have thought that to mean we're ready to go mm-hmm. not that we are actually taking off right now yeah no he said we're going and the first word out of the air traffic controller is okay i think he meant okay as okay you know just waiting for time to you know formulate his thoughts he definitely didn't say okay yes you can do that but you can understand if you say we're going and then someone on the other end of the line says okay yeah and if you're anxious to get off the ground the first thing or the only thing you might hear is okay yeah yeah, he was worried. Obviously, they were worried about the time crunch that they were under. They were worried that the weather was getting worse and they might have to just stay on Tenerife. I mean, if you came to my house and you were like, hey, can I get a beer out of your fridge? And I replied, okay, well, you would take that as, you know, affirmative. Yes, you can go get a beer out of my fridge. Right, yeah, if you said, okay, but first I'd like you to wait five minutes on the couch and yeah and if you only heard the okay and you didn't hear my i'm already getting a beer (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway yeah it seems like um on both ends of that conversation there was a lack of clarity yeah from van zanten and the air traffic control person i agree with you i think like his from reading about this um crash and from watching documentaries on this crash and doing the research on this crash i think that most people lay all the blame on van zanten Mm -hmm. you know they all say hey it's captain van zanten it's his fault a he was dismissive to his first officer and flight engineer both of them expressed discomfort with the way he was going about things i think first the first officer says you know we don't have air traffic control clearance we don't have atc clearance and van zanten's like okay yeah go ask him you know and then the flight engineer, when they're going down the runway, says, is he not clear, the Pan American? And he's like, oh, yeah. He says emphatically to him, oh, yeah, he's, he's clear. So both he wasn't receptive to his coworkers 
comments at all. Do you think there was any sense of this is a small airport, there's probably not anyone on the runway, we can kind of make our own rules? Now that I'm saying that, I feel silly. No, I think it's a a good point. that I don't know that they were like, hey, we'll make our own rules. I think maybe he just didn't really understand. He was distracted, and he didn't really understand that there was another plane on the runway. Obviously, he didn't even think about it. Yeah. He seemed kind of like a... A, he's a guy that spends a lot of time in the flight simulator. So he hasn't spent a lot of time recently actually flying planes. He spends his time training people. And when you're training people in a flight simulator, you can kind of do whatever you want whenever you want. You don't have to wait on other people. If you're in a flight simulator and you want to get going, you don't sit there and be like, oh, we have to wait for other flight simulators to take off first. Mm -hmm. You just get going. Maybe he was just overconfident. Maybe he was confused, cocky. He's clearly distracted i don't think he you know consciously intended for this to happen right i wonder if there was any part of him that was feeling like he um exacerbated the delay by refueling the plane you know when you're having one of those days where you just keep making little decisions that add to the day going wrong Mm -hmm. it seems like Deciding to refuel the plane right before they got cleared to get back on the plane and take off was would be a frustrating decision maybe to him. Yeah, I think uh, I think he it was definitely a bad day for Captain Van Zanten. But you know, I think most of us can just have bad days and it doesn't impact a lot of other people. I think. When you're having a bad day as a captain of a jumbo jet, you have to, you know, still follow protocol. You can't say, you can't use that as an excuse, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have people's lives in your hands. Has anyone tried to say that the, um, the other plane, not quite knowing where to turn off the runway, was at fault? No, you're hitting all the points that are going to be in the report that we'll talk about in a little bit, but... Uh, yeah, they missed their turnoff. Yes, it was a 135 degree turn. Yes, it was, you know, difficult for a jumbo jet to make, but they themselves were even a little distracted in the cockpit talking about, you know, why can't we just use the fourth taxiway? That's only a 45 degree angle. And, you know, they, you know, were talking about what happened in Las Palmas earlier Mm -hmm. while they're taxiing along. I think, uh, it, the, the, I think the biggest thing that people say about this particular crash is just how many things had to go perfectly mm-hmm, wrong right. to add up to this. They weren't yeah, even really supposed to be in Tenerife. Storm. Yeah. At the same time, not not quite knowing where to turn off is not. It shouldn't have life or death implications. Without question, the number one mistake is the KLM plane took off without clearance. They took off before air traffic control said, you are now cleared for takeoff. That's what you have to hear before you take off. And they took off before they heard that. Right. Yeah. So you can, that, that we can lay at the foot of the captain. The weather was awful. I mean, if so many things had to go perfectly wrong for this to happen, if that weather wasn't awful, they would be able to see each other. They would have seen, Pan Am plane would have seen their turnoff and the KLM plane would have seen Pan Am on the runway and they wouldn't have taken off at that time. You also had the misfortune of the Pan Am plane 
um, radioing at the exact same time as the air traffic controller. So you have both of them saying, you have Pan Am saying, we're on the runway, uh, we'll report when we're clear. And you had the air traffic controllers saying, okay, stand by for takeoff. But they said both those things at the exact same time. So they right. get something called a radio heterodyne, which is just this sharp sound for three to four seconds, this high-pitched squeal. You know, one other thing that um, I thought about a lot while I was researching this, everybody wants to pile on Captain Van Zanten. Everybody wants to say he took off, which he did without clearance. But the biggest culprit I see in here is the terrorists. These guys put bombs in an airport, cause this whole situation where these jumbo jets are at an airport that's very small that can't accommodate them. And there's confusion and deaths happen. And I, I can't help but think these terrorists are, you know, numero uno on my list of people that to blame. If they yeah. don't if they don't put that bomb in an airport, both those planes probably land in Las Palmas with no issue, and all those people go on cruises and vacations, and that's pretty upsetting. Yeah, they definitely tipped the first domino. Yeah, they did. That another uh, thing is the as you talked about earlier, the refueling played a big role. If the plane wasn't full of fuel, it would have been able to fly over the Pan Am flight. Uh, when it was coming down. It was so heavy that it needed more speed and more runway to get off the ground. And it also probably wouldn't have caught or exploded, right? Or yeah, who knows? You know, the fire probably wouldn't have been as bad. As, yeah, it was basically just this 150 mile an hour bomb, a 747 full of fuel. Yeah, it wouldn't have been as combustible. Yeah, there's other opportunities too. What if the Pan Am plane had just waited on the taxiway, or you know, waited where they were? been like you know what it's a foggy night there's already a jumbo jet out there why don't i just sit here wait for him to take off it would have taken them at most five minutes and klm could just go and then pan am could do the same thing i'm going all the way to the down the runway and pulling a 180 and taking off another big coincidence is the pan am flight was originally delayed out of los angeles before it went to new york it was in los angeles went from los angeles to new york to it was supposed to go to Las Palmas. If it hadn't been delayed, it would have got to Tenerife first before the KLM plane, not been trapped in, and could have just taken off. Mm. Another thing was that if Pan, the Pan Am flight had just a little bit more room while that KLM flight was refueling, it could have just taken off. We wouldn't have had to deal with um, sitting around waiting for KLM to take off. Yeah, it seems like just... Exactly what you said. It's like the perfect storm of things happening to create. It's like bad synergy or something. Yeah. It just seems like a nightmare. I, I know these are events that happen. We research them because they're accidents, but I can't help the entire time when I research this. It's like a movie you've seen a million times where you mm -hmm. know something bad's going to mm -hmm. happen and you're just wishing yeah, like you, a Final Destination movie or something. Yeah, where you just want s something to go right, and you know everything's going to go wrong, but it just seemed like there was 10 different dominoes that fell right. perfectly for this to happen. Yeah, <sighs> it's really, really tragic. Yeah, it's sad. It's uh, The thing that's sad to me is uh, every time I'm on... Every time we do one of these uh, podcasts, I always talk about how you need to go on vacation. You need to have fun. You need to enjoy life. And that's that's what all these people were doing. 
this whole retirement community, I'm sure they all, you know, were sore and probably came up with excuses in their head of why they didn't want to go on this cruise, but they got it on the plane, you know, they were excited to go on this cruise and to fly all the way around the world and not to be able to go on that cruise, not to be able to go on that vacation is, um, was a real sad element to the story to me was the all these people excited to do something fun and out there trying to do something fun and they didn't get to do it. Yeah, it's really sad. Well, Los Rodeos Airport was closed for a week following the crash as the wreckage was cleaned up and the investigation took place. Since the accident occurred on Spanish soil, Spain was in charge of the investigation and writing the report. Spanish authorities kept tight control of cockpit voice recordings, not allowing them to become public until 18 months after the accident when the report was released. Immediately after the crash, all parties involved are worried that they're going to get blamed for the accident. Spain was worried the air traffic controller would be blamed. The Dutch were worried the KLM plane would get some blame. Americans were worried about the Pan Am pilots, that it might be their fault. In the Spanish report... It lays the heart of the blame on the captain of the KLM plane, Captain Van Zanten. It says the fundamental cause of the accident was the fact that the KLM captain, one, took off without clearance. Number two, did not obey the standby for takeoff from the tower. Number three, did not interrupt takeoff on learning that the Pan Am was still on the runway. Number four, in reply to the flight engineer's query as to whether the Pan Am had already left the runway, he replied emphatically in the affirmative. The report then goes on to ask why a captain of the experience and stature of Van Zanten would have made such a poor decision. First, the report says Van Zanten was under pressure to leave Tenerife quickly because of the duty time limits on him under Dutch law. The deteriorating weather conditions made him feel that if he didn't take off soon, he might might be delayed further and then wouldn't be able to fly passengers to Las Palmas or fly home to Amsterdam. Second, the weather itself made visibility very poor. And the report goes on to talk about how low-lying clouds being blown on the runway made visibility practically zero at times. Third, and the last reason Van Zanten made the poor choice to take off was the unfortunate timing of the radio transmission from Pan Am and air traffic control that resulted in a squeal. No actual information from either the tower or Pan Am to the KLM cockpit. In the final page of the Spanish report, they also list a few reasons why the accident occurred outside of the KLM's captain's decision-making. They blame too casual of a communication and improper language between the pilots and air traffic control. The KLM cockpit said, we are now at takeoff, and air traffic control replied, okay. The report talked about Pan Am's failure to leave at the third taxiway, but acknowledged that the Pan Am repeatedly said that they were on the runway and never gave the all clear to air traffic control. Also, the report said that the unusually high traffic at the small airport caused unusual taxiing procedures. The recommendations listed in the report were that in the future, air traffic controllers need to make sure that pilots are complying with their instructions. Exact technical language should be used by both air traffic control and pilots, 
and the word takeoff should be avoided until clearance is given for takeoff to limit confusion. The Spanish report was released on November 16, 1978, 18 months after the crash when the southern airport on Tenerife had been opened, and the north airport where the accident occurred had recently installed ground radar. After the Spanish released the report, the Dutch were obviously upset because their captain was made out to be the bad guy of the accident. A Dutch response to the report pointed out that in the recordings, it sounded as if a soccer game was on in the control tower, and they suggested that the air traffic control employee might have been distracted. He wasn't fully focused on directing traffic at Los Rodeos. The Dutch also pointed out that the Pan Am flight missed the third taxiway. Despite the excuses, KLM eventually accepted responsibility for the crash and paid out $110 million to victims and families affected by the crash. So how did the accident on Tenerife make flying safer? Well, first off, after careful examination of the cockpit voice recordings, it became evident that the accident on Tenerife was a prime example of poor cockpit resource management. Captain Van Zanten was dismissive of his flight crew's concerns that Pan Am might still be on the runway. He was dismissive when his officer reminded him to ask for clearance. The culture of having a captain that's the boss and shouldn't be questioned needed to be upended. This accident made it so airlines post-Tenerife all trained their captains to be receptive to questions and concerns from first officers and second officers, and also trained first officers and second officers to not be bashful. If you see a mistake, speak up and be assertive. Second, numerous changes were made in international airline regulations requiring standard phraseology to prevent further accidents due to miscommunication in the future. When instructions are given from air traffic control, Pilots cannot say okay or roger. They have to repeat the instructions to show that they understand them completely. The word takeoff cannot be used until a plane is cleared for takeoff or the takeoff is canceled. The word departure is used in place of takeoff to reduce confusion that a clearance might be given. So all that added up to ensuring this, that, that this type of accident doesn't happen again. Does that make you feel good, Tess? It does, yeah. It's good to know that... Uh This seemed to have a lot of um, positive uh, ramifications. Yeah, hopefully something, a similar accident to Tenerife never happens again. As part of the research for this uh, episode, I read a new book entitled Collision on Tenerife by John Zayamek. It was thorough and well-written. If this episode piques your interest in the crash, you can find John Zayamek's book online. In the book, there's a lot of personal accounts of passengers that survived and died in the accident. There was one quote towards the end of the book by Dr. John Duffy that I thought was great and worthy of sharing with all of you today. Dr. Duffy studied the effects of plane accidents on the psychology of survivors. And when asked what he would say to survivors of plane crashes, he said, The message given to survivors should simply be, you have undergone one of the most profound experiences in any one person's lifetime. It would be perfectly healthy and normal to have some degree of emotional upset as a consequence. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't show weakness. It's not a sign of being crazy, but just a sign of being human. Wasn't that a great quote? Yeah, yeah. Very well said. 
I think it kind of transcends plane crashes. I feel like I've known a lot of friends and even myself included that had rough parts of life. And there's this tendency to feel ashamed for being affected by a traumatic event. It's like you're not a man if you cry kind of mentality. Made me feel good to have someone else so clearly articulate that feeling sad or anxious about something that's bothering you isn't a sign of weakness or a sign that you're crazy. Just a sign that you're a normal human being on planet Earth trying to process a stressful event or a period of time in your life. Yeah, 100%. I um, I completely agree. I, w- I definitely wouldn't think anyone was crazy for struggling with an experience like surviving a plane crash. Yeah, but I think what I, what I also took away from his comment is that that's how a lot of people feel, you know, that they feel sad and they feel like they're detached from reality and something's broken but they're really just a human being dealing with things how any of us would right yeah during the research for this episode i learned of another almost tenerife like accident on july 17th 2017 air canada flight 759 took off from toronto en route to san francisco and upon approach to san francisco almost landed on the top of four fully loaded fully fueled commercial airliners waiting to take off. The plane was instructed to land at SFO on runway 28R, but instead it lined up with the taxiway to the right of 28R, a runway with four fully fueled and loaded planes. At the last second, the Air Canada flight pulled up and initiated a go-around and climbed an altitude to make another approach before landing safely. It missed one of the planes on the taxiway by 14 feet. Pretty close, Uh. huh? Yeah, that's horrible. I was hoping this was a thing of the past, but it sounds like crisis averted. So Yeah, it missed causing a crash of five planes, the four on the runway plus itself by 14 feet. That would have meant well over a thousand deaths. Pretty lucky, huh? Investigators blamed a failure of the Air Canada crew to use their instrument landing system, pilot fatigue, and poor lighting on the runway for the dangerous situation. On September 20th, 2019, about 11 days ago, on an American Airlines flight from Phoenix to Minneapolis, a passenger on board claimed to be on cocaine. He locked himself in the bathroom, was seen smoking a joint, and the flight was diverted to Denver, where the man was arrested and taken off the plane before it continued to Minneapolis. How would you feel if you were on that plane? I'd be in the bathroom with him. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, it's kind of... Unfortunate that he uh, caused that delay for all those passengers. I agree. I'm, just... I'm sure he just had some mental episode. I'm imagining. I would be pretty annoyed if you were trying to go somewhere and you had a direct flight and suddenly you had to make a pit stop for somebody. But we all are human beings and, you know, sometimes we go mentally off and hopefully everybody was understanding and hopefully that man's doing better tonight. Yeah, I hope so. Anything else you'd like to share with the people before we end the episode today, Tess? Anything I'd like to share? No, I think that, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for yet again joining us. You're always loved by everyone. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for listening and writing reviews and being so kind to us. We really appreciate it. We'll be back soon. I hope you're all out there working hard doing whatever you chose to do in life to the best of your ability. And I hope you plan a vacation soon because you deserve it. 
work hard, vacation hard, sleep hard. We'll be back soon. I love you all. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.